0: here, but uh, I, I missed the fun sermon, <laughs> obviously, how, uh, as Monty talked about, spoke on the great sex in a godly marriage. Now, folks, when it comes to our culture bombarding us with the lies and values and systems of this world, they're not, they're not two bigger areas than contentment, regardless of your circumstances, and Godly sex in marriage. They go against that grain. And so today, Paul continues with this particular area of singleness, which honestly needs a recalibrating, if you would, not only from the world's perspective, but from the church's perspective. We have not done a great job with singles. I read this week as I studied, one church named their young adult class Pairs and spares, yeah, not funny, not good. So it's crucial here, though, as we dive into this this morning, to remember that Paul is speaking to the whole church at Corinth, even as he addresses these very unique, particular relational situations of marriage and divorce and singleness and sex, et cetera. Paul does not separate his audience into these relational categories, if you would, or special interest groups. And he does it because all these kind of relationships are happening in the church. And he does it because the church is a family. And what affects one in the family affects all in the family. That's Paul's point as this letter is written. Which causes us, I think, when we think like that, to be much more aware of each other in each other's relational situations, so that we can encourage, so that we can love well, so we can exhort well to give strength to live for the glory of God, no matter what relational situation we find ourselves in. So I want to say to you this morning, even though it's singleness for the glory of God, most of us are married this morning, but I want to remind us that 99.99% of us will be single one day again. Let that sink in a minute. As sad as that day will be, most of you as a married couple will not die at the same time. So don't check out this morning because of this particular situation of singleness. First thing Paul does, he speaks to the church about singles in their particular situation. Read with me verse 7. If you would, from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, <clears throat> it says, I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one, one of one kind and one of another. Obviously, Paul is single, and so he speaks there to the church. And here's what Paul says in a nutshell that the gift of celibacy is this singular gift of freedom from the need of sexual fulfillment that makes it possible for a person to live without the need of marriage. Spiritual gifts, here's what we understand here, are supernatural graces given by God for the good of others and to fulfill the mission of the church. Every Christian gets at least one, most of the time more of these, at the point of salvation. Even in 1 Corinthians 12, we're going to spend time there talking about spiritual gifts. So Paul's saying here celibacy or singleness with this gift. It's a a gift of singleness that they can live without sex. It's a gift from God. It's just like a gift of teaching or evangelism, hospitality or serving. And he says here, each has his own gift from God. One of one kind, which would be singleness, and one of another kind, which would be marriage. So Paul says here, celibacy, it's not for everyone. It's for those who have been gifted with that particular gift. And many, obviously, have been called to marriage. So while Paul has this personal preference... For celibacy, he recognizes that celibacy is a gracious gift, but it's not a requirement. Here's the sad part. The church has generally and historically treated those with this precious, special gift of celibacy as if something is wrong with them, as if something is abnormal with them. So we need to remind ourselves, though, that the most fully human Godly and wise human that ever walked the earth had the gift of celibacy. Who was that? When in doubt, say Jesus, God, or the Bible, right? (laughs) Second situation Paul addresses is singleness because of death or other circumstances. Read with me, if you would, verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows I say, That it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul speaks here, singleness, this particular situation of a single person who is single by death or other circumstances. Now he uses this phrase when he starts off. He says, To the unmarried and to the widows. The widows we know are a female who has lost their male spouse. The problem here is we have a challenging interpretive situation with the word unmarried when he says to the unmarried. The question is is Paul speaking in a general sense to all the unmarried people? And then by the use of widow, he names one specific group within that larger group for special mention, meaning. Is he speaking, speaking generally to all married people? And then he adds on widows, because widows are a special category. That's one way to look at this. Generally, all unmarried, then we add when a widow" is a special uh, uh, mention. The second way to look at it is that the word "unmarried refers to a specific group of unmarried people, and it's actually translated widowers." and a widower is a male who's lost his spouse through death. So what's Paul doing here? The next question that goes in my mind as I think about interpreting these difficult passages is why didn't Paul just use the word for widower? Why didn't he just use the Greek word? To the widower and the what? Widowed right? Why didn't you just use that? The reason is there wasn't a word at that time in the Greek language for the word widower. There wasn't. And then secondly, 12 times in this passage, Paul speaks about husbands and wives and in, in what we would use the word in mutuality, meaning husband and wife, each man, each woman. He does that 12 times in the passage. And so the argument here, it would naturally see to fit that pattern here as well, to say widow, widower, and widow. And then lastly, in verse 11 and 34, it is used to describe the demarried, not those who've who've never been married, but those who've been married and no longer married. So regardless here, which way you wanna go, It's a particular situation that Paul's addressing. He's speaking to those who are single by death, maybe by divorce or abandonment. And he says they don't have the gift of celibacy. And in their singleness, Paul says, this is crucial for us. There is a goodness even apart from the gift of celibacy. There's a goodness in singleness. They are to remain single, he says, Without, if they can remain single, so not being overwhelmed by sexual need. And then in verse 9, Paul makes an exception to this. And he tells them that there are some who are single who should get married. Now, who are those? Verse 9 literally says this. If they, let me read verse 9 first from the text before I read it literally. It says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Literally, Paul is saying here if they do not practice or are not practicing self control in the sexual area, they should marry. The person he's speaking to does not have the gift of celibacy, they are single. And they're not just having desires, they are actually living out those desires. They are living in sexual sin. They are going after prostitutes. They are having sex outside of God's design of one man, one woman for a lifetime. And Paul is saying to them, this is an issue. The issue isn't sexual desire or sexual drive, It is the sinful practice of sex outside of God's covenant design for marriage. Now here's what Paul's not doing. He is not offering up marriage as a remedy for those who are living in sexual sin. That would be ludicrous. That's like someone who is living in sexual sin. They said, I can't control myself. I'm having sex all the time with all kind of folks. And me saying to them, well, the best thing you can do is go get married. Like that, that's what Paul's doing here, because we know he wouldn't do that. We we know just humanly, instinctively, that the best way you can calibrate or see the future for what a man and woman has done is look back and see what they have done. And so if that's where they're living, it's a guarantee nearly, that's where they're going to continue to live. But what Paul is doing here is he is saying marriage is to be understood as the proper place. For sexual intimacy. That's where sex belongs. Thirdly, Paul gives this third situation. Singleness and they're never married. Let me read verses 32 through 38 for us. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed or engaged woman is anxious about the things of the Lord how to be holy in the body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about the worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed or engaged or fiance. If his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let him marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So when he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. So the key word for this passage or this situation is the word betrothed or engaged or the one who's never been married, but may be considering marriage or has prospects for marriage. And here again, they would not have the gift of celibacy. So here's Paul's advice in a nutshell to singles, if you would. Staying unmarried is desirable, but not demanded. He says so because he says singles have two primary advantages over those who are married. One, they can focus on how to please the Lord without distraction. And those of us who are married go what? Amen. Two, they are spared from the troubles of married life because married life is more complicated. And again, those of us who are married would say what? Amen. And then you add children to that. And you have not complicated, you have chaos, right? (laughs) Paul says singleness is preferable. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Why? Marriage is not sinful, though, or inferior. Both are permissible. So he also speaks in that passage, 32 through 38, of the purpose of why he said what he said. He says, listen here, it's for your own good. Not to restrict you, or literally the Greek says, to not to put a noose around your neck, but to free them for whatever is appropriate for them, whether it's married or unmarried. The main point is, whether married or single, live your life in the present as one who has been determined for eternity. Paul's call here in chapter 7 is one of eternity, one of the next world. Paul is saying here very clearly, live in this world as if you're going to spend eternity away from this world with Christ in God. That's his whole deal. And in doing so, he says, this frees the single or the married person from the grip of this world and its values to live in the world, but not controlled by its values and systems. That's Paul's point. So there's three situations. Paul addresses And obviously there's some crossbreeding there with singleness, but he covers in those three situations sort of all the categories of situations that a single person can find themselves in. Now, in light of that teaching, here's what I want to do this morning. I want to imagine if you and I could sit down with the Apostle Paul as a single person and a married person and, and, and just sit down with him and get wise, biblical counsel straight from the heart of the Apostle Paul, what would he tell you about singleness? From this passage, primarily, but also from all of Scripture, this, this one-on-one session, Or maybe put it this way, what would I tell you if you came to my office? I hope I would tell you the same thing Paul would tell you as I counseled you with wisdom and godliness about singleness. And the first thing I think Paul would say is singleness is good. And it is a time to commit your life to the supremacy of God and Christ. Singleness is good. We've seen that in this passage. And in this situation, this season of singleness, it is a time, Paul, I think, would say to deeply reflect upon and pursue God, to mature in Christ, to cultivate a walk with God that glorifies God, to actually start as a single, building that in your life now. And there are many of us in this room who were single and we wasted our singleness And God climbed that mountain, and he grabbed us later in life. But we look back, and we did not do this. And we would affirm this. Your future or potential spouse, if you're single this morning, whether you're 14, 15, 18, 20, 25, 30, 40, your potential spouse will look at you the question is, what will they see? In verses 32 to 35, Paul says, there is a freedom for mission and ministry that the married person does not have. Never in your life, single person, never in your life will you have more time and more freedom to invest in the kingdom of God and supremacy of Christ and all things than you have right now. Now, you don't believe me. I know my 22-year-old son does not believe me. He's so busy. But we who are married, we know better. College in America can be So, so stupid. You go there to get an education. But the culture there, our world says college is four years to do what you please, when you please, how you please, in drunken stupors. To waste four years of your life spiritually. And I say to you, no. As a single person, you do not have to live that way. College can be this foundational place where you grow and mature in Christ. I know it was for me. While God has called you to this single singleness, accept your status from him with zeal. Don't waste your singleness. Maturity in Christ does not depend on your marital status. You're free to serve, free to give, free to go, free to take risks, free to trust God with your future, no matter if it includes marriage or it doesn't. It is an opportunity as a single person to come to this place that all of us at some point have to come to where we give up control. And we, as Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane says, your will, not mine. Lord, my life is your life. Do with it as you please. If that means marriage is in my future, I will accept that from the person you bring to me. If not, I will walk with you and I will trust you. College or singleness or this this single season life is 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 a time to set those stakes in the ground. My life is not my life. Westminster Catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. As a single person, lean into that. Sink your teeth into that. Start now with that truth that what He tells us to do is good for us. Aim for our joy. Learn the reality of that now as a single person. Secondly, I think the Apostle Paul based on his teaching here in chapter 7, and in other places would tell us singleness has unique challenges and temptations. Now when I think of this, this relational status of singleness and marriage, I think about flies on a window. The ones on the outside so desperately want to get in, and the ones on the inside so desperately want to get out, right? There are unique challenges when it comes to being single. And they're also in marriage. But in singleness, uh, there's fear of the future. Will I ever have children? To live in this culture that sort of turns their nose down silently that I'm in this relational state of singleness. And one of the biggest challenges, I think, is that of loneliness. However, I want to put a caveat here. If you've ever been married, you've been lonely in the midst of being married. Have you not? Yeah. Genesis 2.18 says it's not good for a man to be alone. Obviously, that is a statement that is before the fall, before sin entered in Genesis 3. But I think perhaps if there had been no fall, there would be no singleness. And no fall, there certainly would be no great commission to fulfill. But I also believe that Genesis 2.18 is really bigger than about marriage. It's bigger than marriage because ultimately God created each of us for relationships, for connection. So it is not good for a man and woman to be alone. It never is, never has been. And what God does, he gives us biblical community to address that issue of loneliness. Here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer A German pastor who was hanged for conspiring to assassinate Hitler. And by the way, you may or may not know, he was single. He knew the needs of single people for family, and this moved him. This was the motivating factor to move him to write his classic life work called Life Together about living in biblical community. And he says this to the single person. Or he says about the single person. He says the single person needs friendships in the church, married and single. And they need other Christians who speak God's word to them. Another pastor, Dr. Frank Schneider, puts it this way. He says we became aware in their church of an affluence of intelligent, capable, loyal, energetic, talented, single adults who only wanted someone to care enough to recognize they exist. Some lonely, some hurt, others self-sufficient and satisfied, but all desiring fellowship in a Christian environment where they can grow, serve, and belong in the family of God. Folks, as a church, we probably haven't done a great job of being intentional in that. We can do better. I want to say to us this morning, The singles need you. (laughs) The singles need your wisdom. They need to be in your homes. They need to see your marriages, good, bad, and ugly. They need to see your repentance. They need you to speak God's word over them in the midst of their fear because you've been there and done that. They need you this morning. So think about it, even as we go through this passage, how can you take the initiative with the singles that you know of in a church and love them well? Thirdly, I think Paul would tell us singleness is not of great importance compared to the reality of God's kingdom. You may put it another way. Nothing on this earth in this life, including marriage, is of great importance compared to the reality of God's kingdom. Here's what Paul does. This is not in our text this morning, but it's in the context. In verses 29 through 31, Paul reminds them this present form of this world that you and I know now and today is passing away, will pass away. In verse 29, Paul Paul says this, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Paul is saying, in a sense... That nothing you do, rejoicing, mourning, buying, selling, marriage, single, nothing you do compares with living for eternity or the kingdom of God. Neither marriage or singleness is the end goal. Living for and preparing for the eternal kingdom is the end goal. In Mark 12, 25, Jesus said, When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Now, marriage, folks, you don't like to hear this. I don't particularly like it. But here's the reality of it. Marriage will not exist in heaven. The greatest thing in heaven with Jesus in eternity will not be you getting to see your mate again. I promise you. It would be like, yo, what's up? And there would be this focus on Christ that is so overwhelming, so mind-blowing, so incomprehensible that in comparing to you getting to see your mate again, it won't matter. Marriage is temporary and so is singleness. Singleness. Both will eventually give way to a far greater reality that the inadequacies in both make us long for. This has a profound, I think, word for those who are single in this life. There will be no disadvantage to those who are single in eternity. Married, single will be the same in Christ together and completely satisfied with God in Christ singleness will fade and you will not be disappointed until then your singleness should be aimed at that eternal reality so we have to ask ourselves whether married or single what is more precious to you the kingdom of God or your marital status I'm reminded of a legend this morning as I think about singleness in the kingdom of God. Her name is Jane Armstrong. She is the aunt of Wayne Armstrong. And when I was a new staff member with Campus Crusade, I heard these rumblings about Jane Armstrong. She's 65 now. She's been on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ for 43 years as a single. She's a legend. Because Not because of her singleness, but because literally she's been around the world numerous times. And she has spiritual children all around the world. Literally maybe thousands or tens of thousands in terms of multiplication. 43 years sharing the gospel, discipling women for the glory of God, for the kingdom of God. That's a heck of a life. And I'm sure she's been alone. And I'm sure she's felt sad. All that will go away in just a few more years. Lastly, singleness is a time to commit to sexual purity. Monty spoke clearly last week about the godly boundaries for sex as a follower of Christ. But if you're single in this world, the world tells you that this is the time to sow your oats. To do what you feel. That what you do now will have no bearing on your future whatsoever. Paul says, don't take your cue from the world. And there's many of us in this room, I know, I personally, I speak for myself that some of my greatest regrets are when I was young, before I came to Christ at 19, some of the things that I took place in in this area sexually. Paul wrote some other words in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter or sister in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you, for God has not called us to impurity but holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God. As a single, these are the years to cultivate self control. Your good intentions are not enough. Your vague intentions are not enough. Where you go matters. Who you go with matters. Who you date matters. How long you stay matters. How you dress matters. How long and where you are alone with the opposite sex matters. If you wait till you're alone in a room or a car with the opposite sex to decide whether sex is right or wrong, you're done. God creates sexual desire, but there's no doubt Satan uses, and I would say even abuses it to get us to bite the apple that will kill us. To put us in bondage and shame, to steal our spiritual hunger, and to make our hearts hard. That takes us to dark places, and we don't even realize it. The stronger we feel sexual desire, the more susceptible we are to being deceived that it's not wrong to satisfy it through ways that God never intended. Here's what I want to say to you this morning if you're single. And it goes for married people too. Look, to cultivate this, but for singleness, cultivate and fight for this now. I I remember at 19, I came to Christ. I knew I was in trouble in this area. By godly counsel, through accountability, I made some decisions at night living in a football dorm where sex was crazy and everywhere. I did not date for three years. I did not kiss another girl. I made a vow before God, a healthy vow. The next woman I kissed would be the woman I married. The next girl I kissed was four years later when I asked Jenna to marry me and I kissed her. I did not look at porn. I did not look at magazines. I completely cut off my right and left arm. And guess what? I was as crazy-headed about sex as you could be. I shudder to think what my life would look like today if I had not done those drastic arm-cutting-off decisions at 19. Tell the truth to those who will hold you accountable. Don't put yourself in compromising situations. I want to say to you, what you look at, what you listen to and read will most definitely hinder or help you in this area. This is a whatever-it-takes mentality, because I know this from experience. The habits that you cultivate now as a single, I promise you, will follow you into marriage. If you create great habits, they will follow you, and if you keep playing around with this, and you don't cultivate sexual purity, just you because you get married and start having sex doesn't mean doesn't mean those habits stop. They follow you. So this morning. Paul dresses this whole area of singleness. And I think he would say to us this morning, if you're single, how am I living? Here's the question. How am I living in my singleness? If you're single because of divorce or death or abandonment, ask God to speak to you this morning about how you're living in this different now relational status since it's changed. If single... But pursuing marriage and desiring marriage, how are you preparing yourself for marriage if God would so allow? And then lastly, if you're married, how are you intentionally initiating to love on and take care of and encourage those in our body who find themselves single no matter what the age? Take a minute this morning to ask, in answer of those questions of a so what?